Revelation 2, 18-29, hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Florence Chadwick was born in 1918, and very early on when she was a young girl, she took up open water swimming, long distance open water swimming, and she competed when she was quite, quite young, and she was from the West Coast, San Diego, and uh, she developed this ability, and she was able to break some records and break new ground in 1950. She swam the English Channel in one direction. And then she turned around and swam the English Channel, not at the same time, but turned around and swam it in the other direction, the first woman to do that. Uh, And then in 1952, she was in her 30s, she wanted to try to swim from Catalina Island uh, to the mainland of California. And so uh, the day was set, and she took off, uh, the water was cold, and she swam hour after hour after hour. The people in the, the boats were trying to keep the sharks away from her, and she just kept swimming. And after about 15 hours of swimming in the cold water, she thought she couldn't do it anymore, but she pressed on. Uh, a fog set in, and so she couldn't see where she was going. She just kept kept going in the same direction. And then after about another hour, 15 hours, 55 minutes, she said, take me in the boat. Her mom was in the boat. They took her into the boat. And uh, then she discovered that she was less than a mile from the shore. And uh, she said later in an interview, she said, look, I'm not trying to make excuses, as if she needed to make any excuses for not finishing that. But she said, look, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen land... If I could have seen land, I know I could have finished. As we have seen, Revelation is a picture book. It's a picture book that paints before our eyes images. Some of them are startling, bizarre images, but they're images that we are supposed to see. 
And the idea is that if we can see these images, then we can keep going. That was the message to the beleaguered churches of the first century, at the end of the first century in Asia Minor, and that's the message to us today. And we have observed how the seeing in Revelation comes out of this first vision. There was a vision that we looked at a few weeks ago in chapter 1, and it's a vision of Jesus. And the rest of the book really flows out of that vision. And in each of the letters, uh, John picks up some aspects of that vision that are pertinent to the particular church that he's addressing, and he applies those aspects to that church. Here we have the description of Jesus in verse 18, and it says, as it always says, the formula is always, and to the angel of the church in, now it's the next city up from the three we've considered, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, and now we head a little bit east, and now we're at Thyatira. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Interestingly, this is the only time in the book of Revelation that Jesus is referred to as the Son of God. However, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 6, we see here that it says that uh, he made us a kingdom and priests to his God, and Father, and so there it presents God as Christ's Father, but this is the first time and the only time that he presents him as the Son of God. Why? Well, later, later in verse 27, there is going to be a reference to Psalm 2. We'll go back and read Psalm 2 when we get to that, but Psalm 2, as I already read in our service, has to do with the Son. And so here, the, 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 the identification of Jesus is the Son of God, and that's preparing us for that connection that he's going to make in verse 27, going back to Psalm 2. And, uh, in addition to calling him the Son of God, it picks up two aspects, two aspects from chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. If you go back to chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, his, The hairs of his head were white like white wool. Like snow, his eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. So which two aspects did he pick up here? He picked up that his eyes were like flames of fire, if you look at verse 18 of chapter 2, whose eyes like flames of fire, and the second is whose feet are like burnished bronze. What does this have to do with the church in Thyatira? Well, we'll anticipate a little bit. If you go down to verse 23, it says that Jesus is able to know um, that he is the one, uh, he's the one who searches mind and heart. So he is the one who has vision that is able to get, penetrate, to see what's going on in our minds and our hearts. And apparently, flaming eyes indicate that ability to look deeply into our souls and see what is there. In addition, it says that he is going to have authority over the nation. And bronze feet would come in handy if you're going to trample the nations. It says later he has a rod of iron, but here we prepare, we're prepared for some sort of, some sort of kicking or trampling with these bronze feet. It also connects with Thyatira in this sense. We have uh, been to three important cities so far. We've been to, as we've seen, uh, we've been to New York City, Ephesus. We've been to maybe Boston or Philadelphia, uh, Smyrna. 
last week we were at Washington, D.C., something like Washington, D.C., in Pergamum. And now we're at Thyatira, the least important of the seven cities. What was Thyatira? It was a city of tradesmen and tradeswomen. So they had trades there. They were not of political importance. They were not of financial importance. But they were of industrial importance. This was an industrial city. And in an industrial city, they did things like bronze smelting. And to, to do that, you need fire, and the product is bronze. So they would immediately have images in their mind when there are these flames of fire and these bronze feet. They knew how to produce bronze in Thyatira. This would have been meaningful immediately to them. As we've seen in all the churches, we have the description of Jesus. Then Jesus says, I know. I know. And he almost always says, I know your works. And he says that here. And here we have the condition of the church. And this is a rather extended one. This is the longest letter. Verses 19 to 24, the condition of the church. Now, in an industrial city of the day, and to this day, in an industrial city, what do we have? We have unions. We have trade unions, right? And they had the same sort of thing. They had trade guilds in that city. Uh, we meet a woman from Thyatira. If you go to chapter 16 of Acts, we meet a tradeswoman. Her name was Lydia. And what was her trade? Purple fabric. That was one of the trades. And so they had tradesmen, tradeswomen in these trades, organized in their guilds. And um, it is likely that the, these trade guilds had meetings that involved sacrifice, uh, to idols, and then eating the food sacrificed to idols, that is the god of the particular trades, the different trades had their patron gods, and in addition to that, um, uh, there was associated sexual immorality. I was able to visit the Far East a couple times in my life, and once I was in a town uh, where the business was stopped that day, so we couldn't do any shopping, really couldn't see what was going on. All the tradespeople, it was something like this, a small city that was industrial, lots of tradespeople, and they weren't doing anything that day, and I asked why not. They said, well, today is the day when they worship the tools of their trade. So they set aside a day so that they could worship the tools of their trade. And this is in my lifetime, so this kind of thing continues to happen. So if you're part of that trade, what do you do on that day? Well, you worship the tools of that trade. Now... If, if I would have gone, I, I didn't, but if I would have gone and gone around to the tradespeople and asked them, do you really believe that your tools are divine? A lot of them probably would have said, no, but it's a day off and we have you know, celebration. And they probably didn't take it necessarily seriously, but they participated at some level in this worship of their tools. There was probably something like that going on. In another city in which I lived, for men to engage in business and to do business deals. This wasn't official, but it was very common that they would go out and do some very heavy drinking, and they would do it at strip joints. And that was just part of what it meant to be a businessman. It wasn't part of a guild or anything, but that was the very strong custom. And if you wanted to cut the kind of deals that you needed in order to get ahead, well, that's the kind of thing you had to do. We, we think of a situation something like that in Thyatira. Um, but this church in Thyatira of tradespeople was amazing in many ways. Look at verse 19. When Jesus says, I know, what does he know about them? 
He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. Your love and faith and service and patient endurance. And and this is quite a commendation, isn't it? And, And what we have here are two couplets that are in parallel. So he says, your love and faith, and then he puts in parallel to love and faith, the actions associated with love and faith. Then he says, your service and your patient endurance. So how is their love expressed? Their love is expressed in service. And that's actually how love always has to be expressed. You know, it's one thing to say, I love humanity, right? It's another thing to serve humans. Which is the harder? To serve humans. But they were doing that. They were not just saying, well, we love, but they were putting their love into action. They were actually serving other people in in an amazing way, in a recognizable way. And it's another thing to say, I have faith in Christ, uh, and it's one thing to do that. It's another thing to endure and to persevere and to keep going on when things get tough. But this church was amazing. They had love and faith, and they showed that love and faith in their service and their faithful endurance. And in addition to that, they were growing in their love and faith. Look at this, at the end of 19. And that your latter works exceed the first. This is um, in direct contrast to what we found in Ephesus. If you go back in uh, Ephesus, look at verse uh, 4 of chapter 2. Jesus says, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. So, in Ephesus, they were doing less than they had done at first, and he's just calling them to do what they had done at first. But in the case of Thyatira, what? They were not only doing what they had done at first, they were doing more than they had done first. This was a growing church, growing in faith, growing in love, growing in endurance and in service. An amazing church in many ways. But, similar to Pergamum, they had a problem with the wrong kind of tolerance. And that's what he says, I have this against you, in verse 20. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. Now, who is this woman? It looks like she was a self-appointed prophetess. She had named herself a prophetess. And uh, she's called here Jezebel. I doubt that that was her real name. Here, there's a reference to the Jezebel of the Old Testament. And Jezebel of the Old Testament, she was a princess, a pagan, idolatrous princess. And she married Ahab, the king of Israel. And it looks like she dominated him and controlled him. And she did that in order to lead Israel. And she did quite effectively. Led Israel into two things idolatry and immorality. Idolatry and immorality. If you go back and look at 2 Kings, for example, chapter 9, verse 22, uh, here Jehu is uh, going against the, the son of Ahab, or going against the kingdom of Ahab and his followers. And uh, here we see that he says, um, let's see, 22, uh, 9.22, it says, uh, Jehu, Joram saw Jehu, He said, is it peace, Jehu? 
He answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Do you see the two categories? There's the idolatry and there's the immorality. And so this self-appointed prophetess, she was teaching the people, the Christians, that it was okay to practice immorality and idolatry. What was going on there? Probably she was doing this. Something like this, if we can reconstruct it. She was saying, okay, you've got to make a living. You're tradespeople. You need to make a living. The trade guilds are set up, and yes, they have these these practices, but they don't really take them that seriously. You shouldn't really take them that, that seriously. It's okay if you're a Christian and you participate in these idolatrous practices. If they don't take them seriously, don't worry about it. And hey, if there's a bit of immorality associated with this, it's just part of doing business. So don't worry about it. It's okay. That's probably something along those lines is what she was teaching. Now, later on, in verse 24, it says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. Now, I don't know, and scholars are divided on who was calling these things the deep things of Satan. Was Jesus calling these the deep things of Satan? Were people calling these things the deep things of Satan? Or was Jezebel, this prophet, calling them the deep things of Satan, saying, don't worry folks, it's okay. We're Christians, we can mess around with these deep things of Satan because we're Christians. And we don't need to worry about this kind of thing. It really won't harm us. But that's what was going on. And you might say, well, how terrible is that? That those Christians were tempted to do that sort of thing. But uh, you say, I wouldn't dabble in the deep things of Satan. But if you have ever cut any corners, uh, if you have ever uh, gone against your faith and sacrificed something of your conscience, if you've ever cut corners for financial gain or for uh, personal pleasure, then you understand the attractiveness of the teaching of Jezebel that says to Christians, don't worry about these things. They're not that big a deal. They won't harm you. It's okay. If you cut a corner here, if you sacrifice a little bit there, it's all right. Now, here, Jesus then makes his calls. And we've seen that he either calls or encourages or both. And here in verses 25 to 29, he calls the church to respond. And um, it's interesting that in Pergamum, he said to the church, you're tolerating people who teach immorality and idolatry. And so you, church, you need to repent. Here he doesn't give a direct call to the church. It looks like Jesus intervened directly here. And he says, I gave her time to repent. Look at verse uh, 25. Um, It says, oh no, I'm sorry, go back uh, to verse 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual morality. And now he's going to do something about it. Uh, And then to the rest, in Thyatira, he has another calling. So he says, he basically says, I'm taking over here the discipline process with this woman and her followers. Um, And what he was doing was bringing about sickness and death. Now, the commentators, this sounds so harsh, this sounds so strict, it sounds so, so, um, so excessive that they, they're trying to sometimes spiritualize this. But if you look at what it says here, I gave her time to repent, to stop doing it, but she refused. And if you keep reading, verse 22, Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, 
and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to his works. The church in Corinth, in Greece, they had these very two problems. They had problems with participating in pagan festivals and eating food sacrificed to idols, and they also had problems with immorality in the church. And they were coming to the Lord's Supper. They also had divisions among themselves. So they were fighting among themselves, had immorality, and food sacrificed idols. And they were coming to the Lord's Supper. And Paul is saying, be careful. Be careful. You're coming to the Lord's Supper, and you're profaning the Lord's Supper. And then he says, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So there's a precedent for this in the church in Corinth because some were practicing these things and profaning the Lord's Supper. Some had gotten sick and some had died. This is strong medicine, but we see something of the reason for that strong medicine here in verse 23. And the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. So the public nature of the discipline of Jezebel and her followers would be a warning not just to the church there in Thyatira, but to all of the churches not to tolerate this sort of thing in their midst. Well, what about the rest? What about the rest? Because most of the people were not doing this. As I said, it was an amazing church. They were just too tolerant of this this teaching. But if you look at verse 24, now we have, what about the rest? It says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. So other than saying, don't tolerate this woman, he's not saying anything else that they needed to do. He says only this, verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. That's all they were told to do. Hold fast to what they had until he came. How long that would take? He didn't say. He just said, hold fast what you have until I come. And here in verse 26, we have something of a definition of the conqueror. In each of the letters, there's a promise to the conqueror. And here it says, the one who conquers, and now we have something of a parenthetical statement. Now we finally get something of a definition of what it means to conquer. And it says here, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give. And then we'll get to the what he gives. But here we have the definition. What is a conqueror? A conqueror is one who holds fast what he has, what she has, until the end. A conqueror is the one who keeps going, who keeps doing what Christ has told us to do until the end. That's what a conqueror is. And this is in keeping with the whole book of Revelation, and this is in keeping with all of Scripture. Uh, The book of Revelation, that's really what it's about. It's saying, hold on, folks. Keep going, and keep going until the end. Until they kill you, or until you die, or until I come back, just keep going until the end. But that's all through the Old Testament. That's all through the New Testament, Jesus said, He who endures to the end will be saved. Paul said that we're in a race. 
And he said we ought to run the race as those who want to gain the prize. And then right before he was about to die, he was able to say with satisfaction, I have kept the faith. I have run the race. I have finished the course. And then we have also in Revelation the way we can finish the course, the way we can run the race. Revelation is the letters that we've looked at or looking at. They are they are bookended by visions. We've already looked at one of the visions in chapter 1, the vision of Jesus, and it, the letters flow out of that vision as we've seen, but it's, it's bookended by visions also in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. And we'll look at just a, a little bit of this vision in chapter 5. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That's what we need, isn't it? That's what the Christians needed. They needed a lion who had conquered. And then John looked and he didn't see a lion. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. An interesting combination here. He was weeping because no one could overcome, and he learns that a lion has overcome. And then, to his amazement, it's the lamb. And how was he able to overcome? He was able to overcome by being overcome. He was able to conquer by being conquered. He was able to gain dominion over the nations by, by submitting to the nations and being nailed to a cross and being slain and with His blood purchasing men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, tongue, people and nation and they will come. They will come assuredly and worship that Lamb. That's how He overcame. And that's how we will overcome in the victory that He has won as well. And there were some here, as we have already seen, that were about to face the same destiny that Jesus had faced. Some of them were about to be cut down. But He was saying, you can still overcome. Even if you're snuffed out, even if you're, you're killed unjustly, you can overcome the same way that Jesus overcame. By continuing until the end in the victory of the lion, lamb, who was slain for us. And what, what will be for those who overcome? Let's go back to chapter 2. Let's look at the promise. In each case, there's a promise for the overcomer. 
It says here, The one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. This is language that comes right from Psalm 2. I already read it, but let me go back and read it again. Here in Psalm 2, we have the nations raging in verses 1 and 2. We have the God laughing in verse 4 and holding them in derision and terrifying them because He says, I've set my King, my Holy One, my uh, my King on Zion, my Holy Hill. And then He says to the Son, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of Me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What's He saying here to us? He's saying, To the one who overcomes, to the one who keeps My works till the end, you will share in this reign of Jesus over the nations. He will share His authority with you. You may be struck down now by the nations. You may be overcome by the nations, even as He was, but you will share in that victory. And then there's the admonition, the invitation to the kings. Be wise. Be warned. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. How can you find refuge from the Son? Where can you find refuge from the Son? The only place you can find refuge from the Son is in the Son. And that's what the book of Revelation says. How do you want Jesus to be for you? Do you want Him to be coming to you with the crushing bronze feet and the flaming eyes and the sword in His mouth as your opponent? Or do you want to kiss the Son, embrace the Son, receive the Son, and find refuge in the Son? Will He be your judge or will He be your Savior? That's one of the, one of the promises. The other promise is a bit more enigmatic. Verse 28, And I will give Him the morning star. What was the morning star? It refers often to Venus, often seen in the morning. Uh, and Venus was the goddess of victory for the Romans. So that may be the reference here. So I will give you authority over the nations, and I will give you the symbol of victory. But later on, in chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus referred to Himself as the bright morning star. So He may be also saying, in this victory, basically what I'm giving you is, I'm giving you Myself. I'm giving Myself for you. As we saw, Revelation is a book about seeing. And it's a book about continuing to the end. And those two things go together. We can continue to the end if we can see. That's the idea. The writer to the Hebrews brought this out very clearly. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, it's on page 1111. The writer to the Hebrews said it this way, to people who were suffering for their faith, he said, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary 
or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You see how the argument goes there? You, if you're still alive, you haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood, but Jesus did. He finished the course. So keep your eyes on Jesus. He's the one who finished the race for the joy that was set before Him. So throw aside the weights that keep you from running easily and fix your eyes on Jesus in order to keep running the race. I um, started the race by God's grace when I was in high school. I became a Christian, heard the gospel and believed it. And I started running the race and it was quite amazing what happened in our public high school. There were many dozens or scores of people who responded to the gospel and, and began running the race. But with sadness, I tell you that not all of them are still running the race. And they went off to college and once again, there was a, a movement of the Spirit in my university and, and some with joy decided that this was a race that they wanted to run and some of them are still running well, but I say with sadness that not all of them are still running the race. And then I went off to seminary and studied with these dedicated men and women who were preparing to give their lives to the work of the Gospel. And I say with sadness that not all of those are still running the race. And then I became an ordained pastor in part of a, a group of pastors that we call a presbytery. Men who had dedicated their lives to the Gospel and most are running well, but I say with sadness that not all of them are still running the race. What happened along the way? I don't know in each individual case, but it looks like they, they couldn't see anymore. It looks like for some reason they lost their gaze. They, they were not able for some reason to keep fixing their eyes on Jesus. And so, some way, some point or another, they lost the path and got out of the race. Florence Chadwick, she tried again a few months later to cross the Catalina Straits there, the, between Catalina Island and the mainland. And guess what? The fog set in again. And so with her physical eyes, she couldn't see where she was going. But what she did was she fixed in her mind a mental picture of the shore. And even though with her physical eyes she couldn't see where she was going, she had in her mind's eye a mental image of the shore. And she finished in 13 hours... 49 minutes, smashing the record by two hours and being the first one, the first woman to cross that distance. What was the key? The key was that even if her physical eyes could no longer see where she was going, she had something in her mind. She was able to fix her eyes on the goal. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And just keep running. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for Jesus who has gone before us, who has conquered, who has opened up the path. 
who is at the finish line, who has sat down because His work was done, and we rest in that finished work. We rest on Thee, our shield and defender. And we pray, O God, that we would not lose our gaze, that we would not avert it, that we would not look at other things that distract us. We pray, O God, that we would be able to fix our eyes on Jesus and finish the race step by step. If we have minutes or days or months or weeks or years or decades or whatever we have before us, before we die or before Christ comes again, when that happens, O God, may we be found with our eyes fixed on Jesus and still running. We pray this in His name. Amen.